One year ago today, the World Health Organization officially declared COVID-19 a pandemic. It was the start of a chain of events that would lead to nationwide lockdowns, school closures, and a number of questionable public health measures. So what have we learned about our nation over the past 12 months? Friends, it's time for Hold the Line. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Welcome to Hold the Line, I'm Buck Sexton. That was Deputy Director of the World Health Organization, Tedros, just one year ago today. Nobody could have thought then exactly what would happen in the months afterwards. We, we just figured that we would do our best to learn as much as we could and stay as safe as we could. But there have been a lot of lessons that we have gone through, a lot of painful ones at that. First of all, you are in control of your own destiny. The government is not your protector, will not keep you safe and, safe and warm at night. It will not prevent you from being exposed to risks, including the risks of a pandemic. For all of the policies, all of the reminders, all the mask up, stand six feet apart stuff that you saw everywhere, we lost over 500,000 Americans to COVID-19. We also engaged in unprecedented, and don't forget about that, unprecedented shutdowns of our economy, of businesses, and governors were given near dictatorial powers and they used them in ways that we're now seeing were often deeply flawed and sometimes highly partisan. So what else can we take from all of this? Well, the Democrats have viewed all of this as an opportunity. It was an ongoing crisis, one in which the control of your life, the government's ability to act in authoritarian manner was expanded beyond our wildest dreams, right? This is something that we never could have thought. They shut down churches, they shut down your business. They told you you couldn't see family and friends. You couldn't even gather with people in your own home. This was a mass quarantine of the healthy, not just of the sick, and it went on for about a year. Nancy Pelosi, of course, now recognizes that this was leverage to the hilt so that they could get an almost $2 trillion spending package that has very little really to do with actual COVID fighting and much more to do with the Democrat agenda. Here's what Speaker Pelosi said. This is the most consequential legislation that many of us will ever be a party to. Who knows what the future may bring? But nonetheless, on this day, we celebrate because we are honoring a promise made by our president and as we join with him in promising that help is on the way. The most consequential legislation in, in their professional lifetimes. That's Nancy Pelosi. She's been in Congress almost longer than I've been alive. And she's telling you this is a big one. You can also see a lot of the parallels to the early days of the Obama administration. Remember, Barack Obama came into office after a financial collapse, the mortgage meltdown, required a rescue of the banks. People were concerned there'd be a freeze on credit and there could be a total run on the markets and all of a sudden you'd have economic devastation and a, a second Great Depression. 
So urgent government action was needed to bail out the banks. And then we know Obama came to office and spent a trillion dollars. That's right, a trillion dollars in what was called the stimulus package. And then they went right to health care after that. And the progressive steamroller, as the Wall Street Journal has called it recently, was fired up and moving. We have that going on right now. We know that this COVID bill was delayed and delayed. It could have been done last summer when the initial round of funding was running, running low and, and depleted, but Democrats wanted to hold on and see what happened in the election. Now it's their way or the highway, and John Ossoff, one of the two Georgia senators who won in what was a catastrophic day for Republicans, unfortunately, is out there telling everybody, yeah, that's right, we just passed this bill. It is very progressive. For anybody who ever doubts that elections have consequences and that voting matters, the thousands of dollars of economic relief that working families are about to receive, the hundreds of billions of dollars for the public health effort and to reopen our schools, the most progressive economic relief package passed in generations by the U.S. Congress. Progressive. A lot of left-wing stuff going on right now on a massive level. And you should be very aware of that. We're coming out of this pandemic. It is ending. It will be over relatively soon. But the Democrats haven't squeezed all the political juice out of this that they can. There's still more for them. In fact, some of them are even telling you, we're not going back to normal. We just went through a massive year-long crisis. We lost half a million Americans. We've had billions, perhaps trillions of dollars of lost productivity all around the world, here at home in America been a nightmare, but it was a crisis that's also an opportunity, an opportunity to change the country that we live in now, not just so we're safe from the pandemic, so that we're safe from inequity, so that we're safe from the lack of social justice that's so pervasive in our culture now, right? Here's Gavin Newsom trying to hold on to his job saying, we're not going back to normal. You know, when this pandemic ends, and it will end soon, we're not going to go back to normal because I think we all agree normal was never good enough. You know, normal accepts inequity. That's why Latinos are dying from COVID at a higher rate than any other racial or ethnic group. And while essential workers' wages aren't enough for them to afford the essentials. Not going back to normal. Crisis is an opportunity. Central idea for Democrats, big state, big government Democrats that want to control your life going forward as well. It's not just this crisis. Trust me, the climate crisis, there'll be others in which they want to seize near dictatorial power. And they've already had a, not just a dry run, they've had real experience at this for the last year. But there is hope, friends. There is hope. There were some who were willing to, dare I say, hold the line during this crisis. There were some who were willing to say, no, freedom still matters. We have to balance the right to live your life with the public health measures of Fauciism. There is no better example of this. Nobody who should take a bigger bow at this moment in time that was in leadership in this country than Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Here's what he had to say. The thing I hear, um, I was just talking to a friend of mine who was in D.C., and he's like, you know, the difference between Florida and D.C. is like, it's dead. It's totally dead. Uh, here, people are living life, they're happier, uh, and th things are just, you just want to be here. That's absolutely the case. Florida's a big winner in all this. Big states like California and New York continue to hemorrhage people. Why is that? If they're so much safer in New York and California, why isn't anyone from Florida to evade the dangerous virus going to California or New York? No, people have been fleeing the blue lockdown states for Florida. There's a reason for that. The journos can sit at home and they can 
type on their on their computers and look into their uh, their their portable uh, portable prompters. But at the end of the day, they didn't suffer the way much of the rest of the country did. People that actually had to experience these lockdowns in terms of economic devastation, the loss of businesses, the psychological consequences of this for people, they realize that freedom is a precious thing and you appreciate it particularly when it's either in jeopardy or when you've lost it. America's southern border may be turning into a humanitarian crisis, but it's a big opportunity for Mexico's drug cartels. John Daniel Davidson, political editor at The Federalist, is going to join us to explain. We're living in very uncertain times, and being prepared for the unknown is more important than ever. I'm sure you've noticed the world we live in is anything but predictable. The government's passing massive spending bills. The Federal Reserve is printing trillions of dollars in fiat currency. And many experts are predicting inflation could run rampant in the months ahead. That could spell disaster for the dollars in your bank account. We can all benefit from something that's a little more reliable right about now, right? Well, what could be more reliable than real gold and silver? I'm talking about actual gold and silver you can hold right in your hands. Call the Oxford Gold Group now. Learn how easy it is to get real gold and silver sent securely directly to your home or how you can have real gold and silver placed in your IRA or 401k. I've done this. I've gotten real gold and silver from the Oxford Gold Group, and I'm going to be getting more. Just call the Oxford Gold Group at 833-600-GOLD and ask for your free guide on owning gold and silver. Again, call the Oxford Gold Group right now, 833-600-GOLD. They'll talk you through this. It's so straightforward. The Oxford Gold Group is the only gold company I trust. Call them right now, 833-600-GOLD. One more time, that's 833-600-G-O-L-D. Friends, as I've been reporting all week, we've got a full-blown crisis at our southern border, whether the Biden administration will admit it or not. This wasn't inevitable. It didn't have to happen. And in fact, it was largely welcomed by our commander-in-chief. It seems like he actually wanted it. At the stroke of a pen, Biden opened the floodgates by signaling to migrants that if they can get into the U.S., they can most likely stay. But asylum seekers and illegal immigrants aren't the only ones taking advantage of the situation right now. Biden's open border policy has rolled out the red carpet to Mexican drug cartels, and they're not going to let this opportunity pass them by. John Daniel Davidson joins me now to discuss. He's a political editor at The Federalist. John, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. You, know, you wrote a piece recently, it was in the New York Post, uh, about how the border is wide open now. Without debate, President Biden has decided on complete open borders. Uh, make the case, because, you know, uh, people on the left, the Democrats, they always say, well, this isn't open borders. Well, I would always ask them, if this isn't, what is? H how do you describe it? How do you explain it? Yeah, it's effectively an open border policy by coming into office and repealing so many of the Trump administration's border measures right at the outset. The message was sent out. So much of border policy and immigration policy is about the messages that we send out to communities in Central America and Mexico where would-be migrants are and the smuggling networks uh, that are associated with these cartels are, and they make a lot of money off this. So when you sign executive orders that rescind all of these asylum policies and all these border security measures that Trump had in place, you're sending the message that if you can get in, you can stay. And that's exactly why we're seeing this surge now. The smugglers are taking advantage of it, and the people in these countries are taking advantage of it now because they, they know they can stay. You know, when you have a, thousands of people that come in, in in a, in a two week period or tens of thousands that come in in a, in a month or two, they, they communicate back 
home to other people in their community saying, we got in, we're, we're, we're here, um, and, and you can come too. And, and that's, what, that's what's happening right now. And, and smugglers are advertising this. A lot of these cartel-associated smuggling networks are disguising themselves as travel agencies, and, and they're, they're bringing in you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you about that, that part of this specifically, John. I mean, the cartels are using the border to their advantage in this situation, financial advantage. Uh, what are we seeing in terms of the, the charging of migrants? I've even seen stories that claim that there are wristbands on migrants now that, that show that which cartel for which plaza controlled by the cartel they've paid off. What can you tell us about how this is working from the cartel, uh, the cartel angle? It's a massive uh, industry. It's a massive black market industry. And the wristband system is something new. I, I think it's something the cartels came up with between the last surge in 2019 uh, and now. In 2019, so many people were coming over. Some of them weren't paying. And so the cartels that control territory in northern Mexico want to make sure that everyone who crosses the Rio Grande pays uh, a fee and that they get their fair share. The cartels gets their, their cut. Uh, and so the wristbands are a way to keep track of people. A lot of these people, especially some of these uh, people from poorer countries, they can't pay up front. So they come into the U.S. owing these transnational criminal networks thousands of dollars. So it's, it's a form of debt bondage, of modern day slavery. They're coming into this country, but the cartel through this wristband system has their cell phone, has their location where they're going in the US, has their family's information back home. And these people are indebted to the cartels after they get here. I want you to respond to what Biden's White House coordinator for the border is saying about this situation. This is uh, Roberta Jackson, play it. I wanna be clear. Neither in this, neither this announcement nor any of the other measures suggests that anyone, especially children and families with young children, should make the dangerous trip to try and enter the U.S. in an irregular fashion. The border is not open. This is a process. We have a great deal to do, but this administration has made significant progress and we will continue to do so. That's Roberta Jacobson for the White House there. And, and uh, John, it seems like their problem is not all the people who are coming in illegally. It's that they feel like they don't have the resources to process those coming illegally fast enough. Yeah. Also, no one cares what Roberta Jackson says. Like the, the Jacobson, by the way, I, I did that too. It's oh, Jacobson. Pardon me. Go ahead. Jacobson. Like migrants in Central America care what that lady has to say about whether or not the border is open. They know the border is open because their friends and relatives have told them that it's open and that they can get in. Uh, and so that's why they're coming. The Biden administration is sending all the wrong messages. When you send the message, don't come now. Wait until we have these bureaucrat bureaucratic processes in place. And you tell that to people who are desperate and impoverished and living in, in failing states and collapsed economies. They don't listen to you. They just do what they have to do to get their family into the United States. And most of us would do the same thing. They're making a rational choice. It's up to us to put in places policies and messaging that deters and prevents illegal immigration. And that is what the Biden administration is not willing to do. What are your sources at the border telling you about expectations from Border Patrol and Immigration and Customs Enforcement for what the next 90 days are going to look like. It, it doesn't seem to me, just observing this, that there's really any effort from the Biden administration to no. stop the flow. So how, how many people do we think could actually start coming across? 
it's going to be hundreds of thousands per month for the next couple of months. The peak of the 2019 crisis was in May of 2019, and they arrested something like 145,000 people. Um, they're going to get about 130,000 this month. This is just March. So April and May are going to be uh, unprecedented, probably record numbers of people apprehended. That's not, that's not to say anything about the people who aren't apprehended, but it's it'll be a full-blown crisis. This is going to make 2019 look like nothing. It's going to be hundreds hundreds of thousands of people per month for the for the next couple of months. And and what do we know about the, the processing when people arrive they come in illegally they claim defensive asylum once they've crossed the border Gen generally it depends I know there are family units there are individuals there's unaccompanied minors and there's different tracks for all of them but in a majority of the cases how long are they being held in what the New York Times calls jail-like facilities before they're released and, and on what basis are they released? It depends on who they are. If they're mi migrant children or unaccompanied teenagers, they're only supposed to be held for three days at these border patrol facilities before they're transferred to HHS. And then HHS does their best to get them to a sponsor, usually a family member, sometimes a parent living in the United States. Uh, and then and then they're, they're sort of off, they go off to wherever that is in the country. Uh, the families, the family units that are taken in, they're only supposed to be held for a short time, um, in most cases, only a couple of days. Then they're given a, an, a court order to appear before a judge months and months from now in some other part of the country. And they're, oftentimes they're just dropped off at a bus station or a street corner um, and, and they're, they're on their own. There's a lot of nonprofits down in South Texas that then take them in, that get them bus tickets and off they go to all points in the United States. It's unbelievable. And it's only going only gonna to increase as we've been discussing here. John, really appreciate your work on this. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Governor Andrew Cuomo is desperately hanging on to power as close to 60, that's right, 6-0, Democratic members of the New York State Legislature have called for his resignation. We have the latest with New York talk show host on 710 WOR, Mark Simone, when we come back. Come as no surprise that I love and respect our nation's protectors, men and women in the military, our veterans and first responders. While there are many great programs out there designed to assist and provide treatment to our warriors in different capacities, one stands out above the rest, Warrior's Heart. Warrior's Heart is dedicated to healing our nation's warriors. They provide the first and only private accredited treatment program in the U.S. for warriors only. Military, veterans, and first responders faced with the self-medicating struggles of alcohol addiction, prescription and drug addiction, PTSD, mild traumatic brain injury, along with other recurring issues in a private 40-bed facility on a 543-acre ranch. More so, Warriors are provided with a minimum 42-day peer-to-peer residential treatment program. Warriors Heart gives Warriors the option of day treatment, outpatient, and sober living, and there's a 60-day minimum. To reach their 24-hour hotline, dial 866-950-0636, and your call will be answered by a Warrior. To learn more about their treatment center, go to www.warriorsheart.com the first. That's warriorsheart.com slash the first. Check them out today. Learn more about this excellent program for treating our warriors. Seems things are going quickly downhill for Governor Cuomo. Earlier today, the New York State Senate Republican Conference sent out a statement calling for Cuomo's resignation, saying, quote, the governor's office is under a cloud of multiple scandals and ongoing investigations. New Yorkers need a leader to focus on the important work facing this state, but the ability of this governor to be anything but a distraction is damaged beyond repair. 
He must resign for the good of all New Yorkers. If the governor does not resign, the next step is impeachment. But it's not just the GOP. You might be thinking, well, this is New York. Who cares what Republicans think there, right? And well, guess what? Nearly 60 Democratic state legislators also echoed, echoed calls for Cuomo to resign, including New York City's Mayor Bill de Blasio. So what's actually going to happen here? What's next? Let's bring in a talk show host on WORNYC with iHeartRadio, Mark Simone. Mr. Simone, good to see you, sir. Hey, good to see you. Good to hear you and uh, watch you all the time. And uh, uh, it's great to be the Cuomo expert because I probably only have two weeks left on this and then you'll be gone. (laughs) This is either going to be a a fantastic, you know, addition to all things you're covering or it's going to be very short lived here, buddy, because it's looking like the heat's getting turned up. Let's let's start with this. Do you think he's going to politically survive this? No. Absolutely not. Here's something interesting. Uh, You know, in impeachment, when the president is impeached, that's simply being charged. Then you have to wait for the trial. That doesn't mean you're convicted. Under New York state law, the way New York is set up, when you're impeached, you're removed from office temporarily. You're not permanently removed till you're convicted. But if they vote to impeach, he's out of office. Lieutenant governor takes over. So and, and, and as you said, there are 60 votes now for impeachment. You need 76 to get the impeachment, which would be a majority. So uh, I could see it getting there at the end of next week. And again, when he's impeached, he's temporarily removed from office. Lieutenant governor takes over. Fascinating what what could happen there. And and then he's not going to have the bully pulpit to try to fight back. I mean, right now he's trying to do the whole, I'm the governor. I got important things to do. I'm going to save everybody from COVID. Just, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves with all these accusations. But even you mentioned the people on the uh, on the state legislature who are going after him from the Democrat side, Bill de Blasio, who, to be fair, I have said that he's the worst mayor in the country, which may be unfair. Portland may actually have a worse mayor, but he's one of the worst in the country. It is possible for him to be right. Mark, here's what he said. It's deeply troubling the specific allegation that the governor called an employee of his, someone who he had power over, called them to a private place and then sexually assaulted her is absolutely unacceptable. It is disgusting to me. And he can no longer serve as governor. Now, I know these two don't like each other, but do you think this is also, is is this a shove that matters at this point in the direction of Cuomo's end? This is the biggest shove ever. Even the most incompetent guy in the world can't believe what a bad job you're doing. Even he thinks you stink. So uh, the, it's not just de Blasio, it's everybody. It's the business leaders, it's uh, you know, the restaurants. They wanna ban him. Uh, it's everywhere. And if this Lieutenant Governor takes over temporarily and is very accommodating, works well with everybody, that'll influence the conviction. The real problem with Cuomo, he's been a bully to everybody in government. Everybody uh, can't stand him. He's not a team player. Uh, Everybody kind of wants him gone. Also, this uh, attorney general is also investigating the nursing home scandal, the cover-up. There's a federal investigation. There's probably something criminal coming along the way. Remember, he threatened the assemblyman, Kim. What he was threatening him to do was to get him to change his story. I could see that being witness tampering. There's a lot of possibilities of criminal charges here. We have six, I want to get into what you mentioned, because I think the nursing home scandal is by far the biggest problem in terms of what he did as governor. I mean, people are dying because of a decision he made. But we had six accusers as of now that have come forward. Uh, You see them here. Five of them are are named and known. One of them is, is as of yet unnamed. And yet here is uh, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand talking about uh, Me Too related issues 
uh, Mark. I w wanted to hear you. I w wanted you to hear this one. Play it. Do you think the governor should resign immediately? Well, the governor's already said he does not intend to do so. Um, but again, uh, asking every female elected in our state when a person should resign or not resign really isn't the conversation we should be having. Why isn't that the conversation we should be having? Let's just thank God she's not a 911 operator. Can you imagine her? Can you send help? Well, I don't know. We could, maybe. Uh, let me think about it. She's the most, uh, in a crisis, she's the worst. Uh, she she reacted far too fast with Al Franken. I think she's leery of uh, all of this. Schumer's the real power in New York State. She works for Schumer. She does whatever she's told by Schumer. And he uh, is staying neutral in this. I think isn't he knows Cuomo will be gone at some point. But. And isn't it amazing that really two of the governors here, and sort of broaden this out even beyond New York, but look, when, when you think of Democrat powerhouses, it's New York and California. Everybody knows that, right? Those are the two major, the two major blue states. You had the governors of those states, respectively, Cuomo and Gavin Newsom, who were heroes of the pandemic. You got Newsom facing a recall for just being such a such a hypocritical buffoon in terms of the lockdowns out there. You see Governor Newsom here. So he may be losing his job. You have Cuomo went from getting a seven-figure book deal, writing about his COVID leadership, to being a guy, as you said, I can't even keep up with all the federal investigations. It feels like, Mark, maybe we weren't given the straight story by the media in 2020 about these two very important Democratic political figures. It feels like something was up there. You know, it's like if you got a baseball pitcher who was the media darling, handsome, gave great interviews. Meantime, he's losing every game. At some point, he's got to go. For those of you around the country who thought Cuomo was doing a great job, the state is totally bankrupt, $63 billion in debt. We've had the biggest exodus ever. A million people left. we got the biggest crime spike in history. Everything is out of control here. He stinks as governor. He's got no management skill. The only thing he was good at was briefings. He's great with slides. And, you know, it's like a bad consultant comes in with too much of a PowerPoint, too many cliches, and can't get the job done when you put it and try to put it into real life. How much of the of the special protection that he had in 2020, Mark, do you think was really just a function of he turned on Trump? You remember in, the, in those early press conferences, he was a guy who was not saying bad things about Trump, and then he completely switched and became a Trump attack dog. I mean, do you, you think that they just let him get away with it while he was useful because it, all of a sudden they're all piling on him. And a year ago, or let's say more like 10, 9, 10 months ago, he was their hero. What happened? Well, you're right. He was useful as a tool to go after Trump. That was very important. And the other problem is I think they've all started to catch on. Even uh, the swamp, Washington, I don't think they noticed that the state is about to collapse financially. And uh, they don't, he, you know, they were on his coattails. They don't want anything to do with this financial collapse that's coming in New York. You know, we're going to lose a couple of congressional seats. Uh, when you talk about a million people leaving, that's the tax base. We're already $63 billion in debt. So when this collapse comes, they all want to be able to say, hey, it wasn't our guy. We got rid of him for you. So there we go. Mark Simone, everybody, check him out on the iHeartRadio app. He's got his podcast there. If you're in the New York area, WOR, 10 a.m., Monday through Friday, 10 to 12. Mark, thanks so much, buddy. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right, coming up next, a New York Times reporter is playing the victim after receiving some criticism from Fox News' Tucker Carlson. Is there anyone left who won't pretend to be a victim these days? We'll talk to my friend, The Hill TV's Sagar and Jetty, up next. 
when in reality, she's actually the journalism equivalent of the creeper cruising by the schoolyard asking the kids if they want any free attention in the New York Times. She stalks teenagers on the internet. And this isn't my opinion. She says as much. And she even talks about how if she were a dude doing what she were doing, people would think it's kind of creepy. And in the interest of equality, I would just like Taylor Renz to know what you're doing is creepy. It has nothing to do with what gender you are or you're not. One thing this past week has taught us is how even the most royally privileged people can dub themselves oppressed. Everyone and anyone is a victim these days, should they choose to be one. Let's take New York Times social media reporter Taylor Lorenz, for instance. She lives in Greenwich. She attended a $90,000 a year Swiss prep school. Wow, <laughs> that's it. That is a lot. And is paid to uh, stalk and cancel teenagers for their online and partisan political activities. Apparently, this fine specimen of journalism deserves our pity because Tucker Carlson dared to criticize her ethics and journalistic standards. To dive into all this elitist whining and hypocrisy, I'm joined by my good friend and host of the Realignment podcast, Sagar and Jetty. Sagar, my man, good to see you. Good to see you, Buck. Thanks for having me, man. So let's just start with, with how we got to this point, because I'm amazed that this story has had the legs that it has, because the media has decided that this is, a, this is a hill they will die on, the how dare you say anything mean about Taylor Lawrence at the New York Times for claiming that she has the toughest life and is under so much pressure and all this other stuff. Here's the original tweet for International Women's Day. This is Taylor Lawrence of the New York Times writing this. Please consider supporting women enduring online harassment. It's not an exaggeration to say that harassment and smear campaign I've had to endure over the past year has destroyed my life. No one should have to go through this. Uh, Sagar, what, what exactly is, what are we getting into here? Why, why is Taylor Lawrence telling us all that she has the roughest time? There's a lot going on there, Buck. I mean, Taylor Lorenz is somebody I've had my eye on for a long time. This is a person whose entire career is tattletale journalism, is hall monitor journalism. Just to give people some of her greatest hits, she is the person who wrote in the pages of The Atlantic how popular YouTuber Mr. Beast said a bad word when he was 19. Or, and this is my personal favorite one, is there was a girl with a popular Instagram account called Girl With No Job. Well, her mom is Pamela Geller, who is controversial. A lot of people know her, a lot of people hate her, like her, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Point of the entire story that she wrote was, this is Pamela Geller's daughter, resulting in her daughter losing millions of dollars in business for her popular Instagram account. She has vaulted that to the New York Times, where she has used that position to lie, yes, lie about people, say that you know people like Mark Andreessen, who was on this popular app called Clubhouse, said the R word. It was completely false. She deleted it, didn't even acknowledge that she had spread a falsehood until her bosses forced her to two days later. This is a completely dishonest, sociopathic journalist who is trying to weaponize empathy for because people are mad at her for doing basically exactly what she does to everybody else. You know, Sagar, the New York Times is throwing their weight publicly behind her in this one. They could just say we're all professionals here, deal with it, but they decided that they were going to call out Tucker specifically. Here's a statement they put out calling out Mr. Carlson at Fox News. And a now familiar move, Tucker Carlson opened his show last night by attacking a journalist. It was a calculated and cruel tactic, which he regularly deploys to unleash a wave of harassment and vitriol at his intended target. Taylor Lawrence is a talented journalist, blah, blah, yada, yada. You know, you get the idea. Uh, why do you think the Times has decided this is a fight that they want to have so publicly? It seems like not the kind of thing that would normally 
rise to the C-suite level, but over there it is. Yeah, because you know this you'll love this buck. Their claim about why Tucker Carlson is inciting a mob against her is because she had the temerity to say her full name. That's it. That's what they could say. Notice how Tucker Carlson keeps saying her full name. What the hell are we supposed to say? Taylor from the New York Times? Nobody like when people refer to me, they call me Sagar and Jetty. That's fine. They can do an entire segment on it and they can even write about it in the New York Times and you know go after me. I'm not gonna say you are use your inciting harassment by New York Times liberals against me because you dare to use my full name in your copy. It's complete insanity. But that's look, this is all a complete and total joke. This is a person who has made an entire career falsely going after people, using her hall monitor skills, trying to make it so that she can report on people she doesn't like. And now when people have pointed that out, people like myself, Glenn Greenwald, Tucker Carlson and others, now it's targeted harassment. You know, Buck, you and I are in the public eye. People say some mean stuff sometimes. Get over it. Not about on you. On international. Everyone no, likes no, no, Sager. They say plenty about They me. say mean stuff yeah. about me, but not, not about my man Sager. <laughs> that's for sure. But, I, you know, Sager, yeah. I think part of the issue here, it seems like there are people who want this to be yet another province of media and journalism totally dominated by the left, where they get to have these uh, online hitmen, in a sense, who are journalists who really just go around being the enforcers of woke, uh, woke orthodoxy, and they protect them because they want that to continue to be a tool in the corporate media arsenal. That, that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, that's all this is, Buck. This is a pure enforcer, plain and simple. All Taylor Lorenz's job is, is to go on Clubhouse and make sure people aren't saying bad words. When is the, is that worthy of the New York Times? Get out of here. Or Mr. Beast, a YouTube, this, the guy goes in and buys Xboxes. He said a bad word when he was 19 years old. Or even, like I said, the one that will always get me is a girl with a famous mom. Does she deserve to have her entire business and life smeared and destroyed? Absolutely not. And Taylor Lorenz is getting one-tenth of that online because, once again, she's an influential person. She's proven it as such. She's a star reporter at the top paper in the entire country. She's 100% available for scrutiny. And her crying and messaging around this is complete weaponized empathy. It's sociopathic, honestly. And it also seems to me that there's a whole subset of journalism uh, journalism, whatever that is these days, where you have people whose jobs are only to attack other journalists, but they're always conservative journalists, right? They don't attack journalists as a general matter. I mean, uh, Darcy and Stelter at, over at uh, CNN, their jobs are just to try to smear people like, like you and me and people who work at Fox News, people who work in conservative media to get us deep platform taken off. I mean, Keith Olbermann, who is a well-known yeah. uh, lunatic, I mean, a well-known crazy person who's out there, used to be the biggest anchor at MSNBC. He tweeted out, it's past time for Twitter to ban Tucker Carlson and Sean Davis of the Federalists. They're perpetrating terrorism on video. <laughs> I mean, Sager, I mean, Keith Olbermann, he's kind of, he's kind of amazing in his own way because he is actually, he's like hilariously insane and any lib who used to watch him and think he's smart should be embarrassed by it. But they really do want to deplatform, and they're successful in it sometimes. Yeah. No, this is what I'm scared of, Buck. I talked about this today on our show when it was about Piers Morgan. Look at the UK system where they don't have a First Amendment. That is what journalists want here, where they can use a woke mob in order to incite a government agency to go and investigate you and force you out of your job. 
Now, God bless the fact that we have a First Amendment, but these is the these are the things that people want. Oliver Darcy and Brian Stelter are the ones who have prompted Democratic lawmakers to try and take Fox News off of the air. Not you know by legal means, they want other companies to do their dirty work for them. And Taylor Lorenz is exactly a cog within that machine. She deserves 100% scrutiny over that. If she can you know change people's fortunes through her journalism or go through and make sure that she can tattletale on what people are saying on different apps, then 100% she's worthy of coverage on my show, on Tucker Carlson's show, Glenn Greenwald's newsletter, everyone. Welcome to the public eye is all I really have to say. Like I said, I've endured plenty. People have said some really nasty things about me, but I guess on next International Indian Day, I'll make it all about me and about all the criticism that I've that I've faced and not about people who are actually starving. It's just the most insane logic that you could ever consider. You got to check out Sagar and Jetty's podcast. Also go see him on YouTube where he's got a show. Sagar, good to see you, buddy. Good to see you, Buck. Thanks, man. All right, we got quick hits coming up next. Stick around for those. You never thought COVID-19 could cost you your home, right? Well, it actually can. Here's why. Cybercrime across the board is up about 75%, and by far the most serious cybercrime to worry about is home title theft. That's right. Cybercriminals, foreign and domestic, are now after our homes, and it's easier than you'd think. The title documents to our homes are online now. The thief finds your home's title, forges your signature on a quitclaim deed stating you sold your home to him. Then he takes out loans on your home and leaves you in debt. You won't know until late payment or eviction notices arrive. Insurance doesn't cover you, and neither do common identity theft programs. That's why I protect my home with Home Title Lock. The instant Home Title Lock detects someone tampering with my home's title, they help shut it down. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim, then use code RADIO to receive 30 free days of protection. That's code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. Again, code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. Texas Governor Greg Abbott takes some action against a social media platform and Bro Cuomo's latest rant against Republicans. we got those stories in quick hits. Let's get right to it. So I've been pretty critical of the governor of Texas during the pandemic. I think that he bent the knee to the Fauci left far too much. He allowed for lockdowns that were unnecessary and for far too long, was not willing to stand up for individual liberty, freedom, and constitutionalism. And now we have Abbott finally trying to reopen Texas, get things going. And we also have the fight against the social media platforms out there that are actively suppressing conservatives. We know this is happening. They admit this is happening now. They pretty much brag about how they're uh, shifting the conversation nationally in this country toward a more left-wing point of view. Facebook, Twitter, Google, which owns YouTube, all of them. But then there's this other platform called Gab, which is a place where some conservatives were going along with Parler and others because it was a platform that they did not believe had the same levels of censorship. Well, now Governor Abbott is saying this about Gab. Play it. Anti-Semitic platforms like Gab have no place in Texas and certainly do not represent Texas values. What does represent Texas values is legislation like this by Representative King and Representative Goldman that fights anti-Semitism in Texas. Now look, anti-Semitism is bad and fighting anti-Semitism is good. That's very straightforward and clear. But calling out Gab, which is a social media platform because of what some people say in it, there are 
people plotting actual murders on Facebook. I mean, there are people that are doing all kinds of crazy stuff on these social media platforms. Gab is not dedicated to anti-Semitism, nor does it do any special outreach for anti-Semites out there. And free speech platforms, and this is the part that a lot of people have started to forget about, free speech platforms means if you're going to allow speech that is legal but hateful, that includes speech that is going to offend people based on their race, religion, ethnicity. That is actually what free speech would mean. But that's not something that the right seems to want to defend these days that conservatives or, or civil libertarians or anybody else for that matter seems willing to stand up for anymore. The notion that it is the offensive speech, it is the speech that makes you sick to your stomach because you disagree with it so much that it's supposed to be protected by the First Amendment. But then also there's the principle of free speech more broadly, which means that you're not going to have censorship based upon ideas unless they actually actively violate the law. You know, this is where you get into uh, calling for an imminent, imminent violence against an individual, for example, something along those lines. So banning a whole platform or taking action against a platform because some people are saying bad things, that's, that's not conservative. It's actually not, and it's not about individual liberty and free speech either. Uh, Bro Cuomo, not to be confused with his brother who's having a tough time clinging to his job as the governor of New York, Bro Cuomo over at CNN uh, is taking a shot at conservatives over the whole Dr. Seuss thing. Here's what he said. They only want a rescue plan for Dr. Seuss. And by the way, facts first, it was his estate that decided not to publish more of certain books. No one else made that happen. Rescue Mr. Potato Head, they say. Rescue the royals from any reckoning of racism. Because, you know, there's something about that Meghan Markle that seems, oh, I don't know, dark. Yeah, you mean like her skin? She forgetting her place? Is that why you're so upset about it? Everything they say about Markle is code for dividing us by color. Remember this day. This was the chance to make up for the pandemic denial that they enabled. Pandemic denial? I mean, there's so much wrong here that it's hard to know where to start. But let's start with the, uh, the estate of Dr. Seuss pulling the books. Yeah, it's because they know the woke mob is going to come for them. It's only a matter of time. It's a preemptive self-cancellation. And by the way, also eBay took action too. So what he said isn't even true. There are other platforms that stopped selling the book. Oh, we can't sell it. We can't sell it anymore because the woke mob will come after us too. So he's wrong on the facts, wrong on the analysis, but it's CNN, which is just a place for liberals with, you know, 105 IQs who think they're 135 IQs. That's basically the CNN audience. And then we have uh, Jen Psaki, Psaki Bomb. Uh, she's having a hard time explaining why it's not a crisis at the border when we all know that it's actually a crisis. And here's how some of that goes. From your perspective, have the Border Patrol unions and the HHS unions been easier to work with than the teachers unions? I, I think that's a, a little bit of mixing different circumstances. Uh, I would say that uh, it's, it's children all in tight quarters. Uh, I, I mean, a classroom, but not quite. Not, funny. Uh, uh, not quite. I, I would say that let, let's let's take a responsible approach to the two issues. <laughs> like this is Peter Ducey over at Fox. Like it's not funny, and and he's right. It's actually not. But what's funny is that she thinks it's funny because it's just all nonsense from them these days about how there's no crisis at the border. It's just a challenge. 
just a challenge. Yeah, they've, they've created an open border. Congratulations. Democrats want this, by the way. Don't ever forget this. They actually want this. And, of course, they're going to blame Trump for everything when it goes really bad. We all have known that's going to be the case. And Ambassador Jacobson had this to say about the crisis at the border. President Biden has made clear from day one that he wants to change our immigration system. Doing so means truly building back better because we can't just undo four years of the previous administration's actions overnight. Those actions didn't just neglect our immigration system, they intentionally made it worse. When you add a pandemic to that, it's clear it will take significant time to overcome. Yeah, Trump's fault. Just wait until the economy hits some really choppy waters coming up here after our trillions of dollars of spending. Just wait till that happens. You know all of a sudden it's going to be the Trump economy that we're suffering through, right? Even though Joe Biden is president and is making, or rather the handlers around him, are making enormous decisions that affect the country, including the creation of a de facto open border. We'll continue to be on this, though, even if the left is going to keep lying about it. That's it for tonight's Hold the Line. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is up next. Shields high.